Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back for another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college action this season. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code BLEAVE. B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus today. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers on the 2021 season. Bet online, where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is October 14th, according to my count, coming off of a day where I was able to go to sleep early because there were literally no sports on, which means we don't need to do an A block today. I haven't come prepared with a fascinating, nuanced, complex story from the sports world that transcends sport into society. We're just going to hop into our conversation with Blake Jude of Stripe Hype Cincy and Blake told me on Sunday he was super excited for the podcast and uh, I hope that it lived up to his expectations. So that being said, let's not mess around. Let's hop right into today's podcast on a Stripe Hype Thursday. Boy, oh boy, am I ready for this podcast? Uh, How are you feeling? Obviously, Uh, see, obviously, this has been a crazy week since the last time we talked, obviously, but uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'll start this, but the first place I would definitely go is it's Georgia week for the undefeated Kentucky Wildcats who control their own destiny through the SEC East. Of course, that's why you're excited to talk today. Yeah, I mean, there's many reasons. This is just a very entertaining week of football in general. And I mean, Man, I, I never thought I would hear those words saying Kentucky versus Georgia to control our own destiny. Like, that is absolutely insane to think about. And I was so hyped. You know, I, I ended up going to the Bengals game instead of the Wildcats game. But I wish I went to Kentucky because I saw that crowd. That was amazing. It was a great game. I love that the internet has now dubbed that place Murder Kroger Field because uh, the I believe Kentucky Stadium is called Kroger Field, right? And right. everyone yes. is – Everyone's making the jokes that Kroger is just like the the lowest of the lowest of classes in the grocery store rung. That Kroger's is uh, Kroger's is the place to go where you just want to chain smoke in the parking lot, and it's fantastic that they sponsor the undefeated Kentucky Wildcats now. So, uh, congratulations that Murder Kroger Field was rocking after you guys curb stomped the LSU Tigers this weekend. 
I mean, it was, I mean, it's surreal to see how good this team is playing right now. I, I would have never have imagined it. Um, you know, I thought we had a chance to beat one of Florida or LSU, but I think a lot of us fans kind of thought that, you know, that was probably not going to happen. And, you know, I was okay with that. We're the Kentucky Wildcats. We're okay. A 10-2 and two season is fantastic for us, right? That, we're not complaining at all. We're playing in close to a New Year's Six Bowl, if that's the case. We're happy. But to see this team now 6-0 and and to think like, hey, if you pull off the biggest of miracles against the by far the best team in college football right now, if you somehow pull that off, I mean, like that's that's playoffs right there. Like it yep. just, it's that close, even though it's so far away. Time because this is the hardest game you're ever. I mean, this is the biggest match, the best team away in college football. I like, guess this is going to be the hardest matchup you could possibly play. So I don't expect this to win. But if you did, this is playoffs, and that is insane to think about for the Kentucky Wildcats, a team that I mean, we're a basketball school. You know, it's just, it's never happened before. I mean, slowly but steadily, Kentucky's becoming a football school, right? You said that like it was weird that you hadn't had yeah. like you hadn't had a, a moment where you control your own destiny in the SEC. But wasn't there like a weird time back in um, what was it, 2018, where you guys did play like a home game against Georgia, and if you won, you would have had like a chance to win the SEC? Was am I remembering that wrong, or was that a thing that happened with the? Josh Allen, Benny Snell team. Wasn't there like a game on CBS where you had a chance to win the SEC East? We had a chance to win, but we had already had two losses. So I think we would have probably had to win that game and then be Alabama to have a chance. Ah. But I think, I think there was for sure a chance for us to play in Atlanta if we won that game. I think Georgia also had a loss at that time. So we would have both had two losses. And I think we had a tiebreaker over Georgia. Of course, there would have been a shot. That was the we'd be Penn State in the Citrus Bowl, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we we pretty much got destroyed that game. We figured it out so. on the last podcast. It was your greatest victory since like 1961 or something like that in football. Like the win against yeah. Penn State in the Citrus Bowl, which is unofficially the seventh New Year's Six Bowl game. But yeah, the, that win was the best bowl game that you guys had had in, what, 50 years? Yeah, and, and this this game right here. I mean, this this is definitely probably the biggest game we have played in 50 years. I mean, this is the most important for the program because, I mean, not, not only is the program already turned around, like, I mean, like, look at what Kentucky has done. This is going to – crazy and everything. It's just going to completely turn on their time. Football sitting big crowds and he's really excited uh, about it. But not only is it big for that, but if you if you manage to if you manage to stay close to Georgia at least, you're all of a sudden looking at Kentucky as being one of these like upper tier SEC teams. Not 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 particularly like Georgia or Alabama, but more along the lines of maybe uh, I, I would say Texas A and M, maybe maybe Mississippi State, one of those schools that always recruit really well and get some solid players. If you're up in, in that echelon of sec teams i think all of a sudden you have a chance to be a, a regular occurring top 25 team with four or five star recruits yearly and that is incredible for this program to see the turnaround with a team that had entirely two and three star guys to a team that is now finally starting to get superstars and get regular draft picks each year i love your perspective on this that it's a massive victory for the program it took a decade of mark stoops building it up but congratulations you have finally become auburn that is a massive victory <laughs> yes. for the program. Listen, for Kentucky, that is amazing. We went from Vanderbilt to Auburn, and that is a big upgrade in my heart. <laughs> I love this stat. That now that uh, Alabama lost uh, their 80-game win streak uh, this weekend of games where they're favored by double digits or more, uh, the Kentucky Wildcats now have the longest yep. win streak in college football of games where they're favored by double digits or more. 
pressure's on. I believe it's only like 30, right? Like it wasn't even close. It was- no, it was not even close to Alabama, but still it's, it's weird that Kentucky now holds that record in college football. I think it's mainly because we're only favored against the, in double digits against like FCS teams. <laughs> we don't want FCS teams and Vanderbilt, who is worse than an FCS team, but yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, it's easy for us, but now that we're good, we're going to start being double digit favorites against better teams. Like, maybe a Tennessee or something like that. And I, I'll bet, I don't think this will last very long. Oh yeah. Let's see how cocky you're feeling when you're a 23 point underdog against Georgia this weekend. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's just not going to, but, but we'll this see. is your week to celebrate. Think about it in a week where we had all this craziness that happened. I want to start with Kentucky football. Cause this is your week to celebrate. This is your greatest weekend in program history and you deserve to celebrate it before Georgia curb stomps you by 45 points. Listen, listen, this has been the best like beginning start to football. I think I've ever had in my life, right? Like my two favorite teams, Kentucky and, and the Cincinnati Bengals are a combined nine and two right now. Can you, can you imagine that Kentucky and Cincinnati combined and, and, and should be 10 and one, and like two. they've underperformed. They've right. underperformed yeah. at this point. <laughs> Right. I mean, it is it is a great time to be a fan of both these teams. Usually, like back in 2015 when the Bengals were good, Kentucky were you know, no nobodies. They weren't really having many teams. They were going six and six each year, and that was you know all right. I was okay with that. But now you're all of a sudden you're both these teams are like right in the thick of things and in in the biggest spot of them all, the playoffs, possibly a big bowl game. I, I just think it's insane to think that that's happening to me at the same time. This has been the funnest start to football I have ever witnessed in my life, and. That's why I'm very excited to start podcasts. I just, I'm so bought in on everything. Uh, And I think a big reason of that is because of how well my favorite teams are playing right now. Just the fact that like, you know, I just, whenever my my favorite teams doesn't do well, it's harder for me to watch games that like, I think like that could be us. You know what I mean? Like that just sucks for me. But now I'm like genuinely watching teams to scout them for the future. Like I'm watching the Ravens every single week. Uh, I watched the Ravens Colts game the entirety, entirety of the way through it. I was thinking like, the Bengals have a shot against the Ravens. I want to see if we can, you know, things like that. And it's just so much, it's just so much more enjoyable for me to be able to watch all those games instead of just flipping it on and being like, all right, let's just watch and see how this goes, you know? So, yeah. And then know. you can drive 10 minutes over the bridge and all of a sudden the University of Cincinnati's ranked higher than Alabama now. And they've got a, yeah. a path, to, a fighter's chance at the college football playoff at this point. Although I'm predicting that UCF will beat them because UCF brought you into this world and they will take you They'll out take of it, it right now. I, yeah, I told my friend that because when you said it, it actually made me laugh really hard. <laughs> but yeah. yes, no, I, I love it. Um, but yeah, I, I also, I watch all Ohio State and Cincinnati games. They're always on our TVs. Uh, so it's easy to get those games. And, you know, it is fun to watch. Sometimes it's a little bit harder to watch Cincinnati because they're always blowing out South Southern Alabama by 40 points. So it really doesn't even matter. But yeah. uh, for Ohio State, you know, this is a really tough schedule for them. And, and they're, they're slowly rising up the rankings after losing to Oregon. And I'm interested to see how they perform as well to see if maybe C.J. Stroud and this offense can get things going to maybe start to move up the rankings because I think that they do still have a shot at the, at the four seed if they go undefeated. They have a really for tough sure. schedule, though. Yeah, for sure. Like, that's the funny thing I've been laughing at right now is that there's five Big Ten teams in the top ten right now. 
I'm looking at it. I'm like, how is that possible? Is the Big Ten that good? I'm like, oh, no, they're all just going to beat each other up here in the next couple of weeks. And it's going to be like the Big Ten of yesteryear where it's going to be Ohio State. Maybe Iowa is going to be there. Everyone, Iowa actually probably will be at the top by the, the time the Big Ten championship rolls around because they don't play anyone. They do have the Purdue game coming up. That's always the hardest game anyone can ever play is a team with expectations having to play Purdue. But still, Iowa's got almost nothing in their way. But uh, like Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, they all play each other in the next month and a half. They're all going to beat each other up at some point. Someone's going to be left standing undefeated. I just don't know whether it's going to be Ohio State or Michigan or I guess Michigan State might have the Heisman Trophy front runner right now in Kenneth Walker. So who knows? Like that that whole division is just going to start beating each other up real quick recently. But they can celebrate this week. They've got five top ten teams. Yeah, I mean it is a it's a great week for uh, the Big Ten as well because I mean they're just obviously so stacked. And it was that, that Iowa Penn State game was fantastic. That was a really really fun game to watch. And honestly, I, I was. Really, I picked Penn State to win the game originally, and I was actually kind of surprised to see how well Iowa actually played. That that, that proved to me that that team is legit. That Iowa team is absolutely legit. And and to see, and to look back at all the talented guys they've had, I mean, they, that is tied in you right there, T.J. Hawkinson, Noah Fan, all those great tight ends that they've had. George Kittle, they have George, yeah, George Kittle, obviously. I mean. Uh, Pairing that along with a constantly consistent, really good defense and just an overall pretty dangerous passing game, I just thought that that team would have been, you know, better in years past. And I feel like this team doesn't particularly have those elite type players, but at the same time, this is the best team they've ever had. This is just the most balanced, the, the most, I, I think, top to bottom, the most balanced and better team uh, they have ever had historically. And you could maybe even argue outside of Georgia, they're probably the second most balanced and well-coached team right now in total college football. That's the big reason why they're ranked number two. More than Alabama, even? It's tough, but you could argue it, I think. I mean, Alabama just showed that, you know, I think the problem with Alabama right now is, you know, it's just still a really young team full of guys that are still – I mean, Alabama, this is – every college football team has a rebuild year, right? And, you know, sometimes bigger, bigger schools like Alabama, it doesn't hit them as hard because they're just still stupidly talented with five-star recruits. This is Alabama's rebuild year. This is the year that they're trying to refresh and get new players. They don't have – a Devontae Smith or any really big game-breaking guys right now. I would argue they really don't even have any top 10 prospects right now other than Evan Neal in the draft, their offensive tackle, who still has a lot of question marks. So I mean, this is a team that I think is still has a lot to prove. And I think with a, a freshman quarterback like Bryce Young, I don't know if I would bet on them as, as much as I would bet on a balanced team like Iowa. Now, I, I think you can definitely argue that they are going to be better in the long run. I, I think, you know, maybe give them a couple more. This is a team I can definitely see rising later in the season. All of a sudden, they're a dominant force again. But as of right now, from the beginning to the end of the season, I think we're probably going to look back and say Iowa is the most consistent team of the group. Yeah, I'm going to save this audio for when Alabama just curb stomps Iowa in the college football playoff and be like, yeah, look at this. I, Alabama's got five-star recruits everywhere and still beat up everyone. But uh, you did you did put the precursor in there. It's right now. Right now, Iowa is a more balanced attack. They Their defense is so good. I can't name you a single player on the Iowa defense, but it's so good. That's um, exactly I, what I'm saying. It's just like – there's no stars. It's just super balanced and talented. I, I don't, it's weird. I don't, I don't really get it. Yeah. I was looking back. I was like, you, you said it was the best Iowa team they've had. I was thinking back, like, I think they made a Rose bowl like semi recently. And I, I found it, they did indeed. And that was, uh, 
I believe that was the Christian McCaffrey Rose Bowl where he went for like four touchdowns for Stanford and they just destroyed. I think it was Iowa, but Iowa did indeed like they got kind of close one year where they won the Big Ten. Um, I'm looking back at Iowa football now. They've been remarkably consistent for the past, you know, 15 years under Kirk Ferentz. It's a lot of third place, third place, fourth place, third place, fourth place, fourth, fourth second third fourth third second in the in the big 10 west which i guess just means they're kind of behind wisconsin most years but i always been like always that team that's remarkably consistent and then every like six or seven years they have a pretty good team where they're in a an orange bowl in 2009 an orange bowl in 2002 uh the Rose Bowl in 2015. And now this year they have legitimate playoff aspirations, even though I think if they lose to Ohio state in the big 10 championship, I think they're going to get left on the, the outside looking in. If it's Ohio state, Iowa, I would say the winner probably gets the, the last playoff spot there. I would imagine, but you know, I, I really think one thing that um, I really look at with Iowa is the fact that like, you know, despite them having top five top 10 teams right now and in the big 10, I was the only one and their side of the Big Ten to be in the top ten. It's a very easy schedule for them. I think there's a very good chance that they go undefeated up until the Big Ten Championship. And as long as you're able to handle business against a team like Michigan, Michigan State, uh, Ohio State, any of those teams, I think you're in great shape to be probably the two-seed for the playoffs, which it would be huge for them. That's likely putting them up against Cincinnati. And for one, it's a matchup I really want to see. I want to see Cincinnati's legit. But I think you could really argue. I already said, I think Iowa has one of the most complete teams right now. And I think Cincinnati, despite you know having a lot of good games, is still a team that we don't know too much about. And I want to see if maybe they can handle business against a Cincinnati team that has played a fairly easy schedule up until this point. I'm going to open up the floor to you. What do you want to talk about outside? We've done the college football. We got your Kentucky talk in there. I'm just going to open it up. What do you want to talk about? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, well, I think one thing that I have been really interested in, and, and I think something that it's probably just the scout in me is looking at this rookie of the year race right now. And this isn't, this is not an excuse to bring up Jamar chase, but <laughs> I do want to, th- I do want to throw out there. I have seen so many people start to say Najee Harris is the leader for offensive rookie of the year. And actually I want to ask you this question. Who do you think outside of Jamar chase are the top three rookie of the year front runners right now? And your eyes, what you've seen so far. Uh, number one, 100% is kick swagger. That's 100%. The, my first pick oh, yeah. Evan, Evan McPherson, 100% is number one on my list, even though he Love missed it. the two kicks at the end of the game. Um, no, it, I, it has to be chaser Najee. Cause I don't, I don't really think anyone else has caught my eye in that way. Like I know, um, I know Mac Jones has been okay quarterbacking. Like it's not anything special though. Um, Devonta Smith's got a couple touchdowns in there, but I, who else were you thinking of? Am I, is someone just slipping my mind at this point who I'm not thinking of? Well, well, I, I'm really thinking, you know, it's so early in the year and I think we just finally saw a couple of rookies break out right now. And two names that I'm really looking at as possibly being like late risers here in the, in the rookie, I guess, group right now are Kadarius Tony and Kyle Pitts, who each had fantastic weeks this week. Darius Tony had 180 yards receiving, which broke the New York Giants rookie record uh, for a single game this season. Now that he's finally getting targets, he has shown he did against one of the best corners right now in the NFL, Trayvon Diggs. I mean, this guy went off against, you know, the guy has six interceptions right now. 
Uh, and it was really impressive to see how well he played. I'm really excited to see how he can play for the future, especially now that Kenny Galladay's hurt and Sterling Shepard has, excuse me, Sterling Shepard, Darius Slayton has really not worked out this year. He's going to be probably getting sick of most bulk of the targets next to Sterling Shepard right now for this offense. I'm really excited to see how it works out with that, especially without Saquon Barkley now. Uh, and then also Kyle Pitts, I think, finally has all of a sudden emerged as one of the key targets for the or, or, excuse me, Atlanta Falcons this week. Uh, having a great game against the New York Jets. And I think right now, um, you know, with Calvin Ridley and Russell Gage out, he has really proven to be that primary target. I think once they even come back, Calvin Ridley has shown that he's almost desperate for an extra uh, target next to him. I think finally now Kyle Pitts has emerged as that next guy, and I'm really excited to see how he can perform with both Ridley and Russell Gage back in the future. I think both those guys are, are suddenly late risers right now in, in those talks. And, you know, if you asked me before the – this season, I, I would never guess Kadarius Tony. It's a guy I wasn't nearly as high on as everyone else, but I, I was really impressed with his play. And Kyle Pitts, though he's a tight end, and tight ends normally don't do great the rookie year. He really impressed me last week, and all of a sudden, I'm now interested to see how he can continue to perform and make contend with Jamar Chase for this record for this title. So you mentioned Trevon Diggs in there, and I wanted to ask you about that because that's something I'm interested in on the other side of it. Not that Kadarius Tony is super interesting, but at the same time. Um, what do you make of Trevon Diggs this year as like, you know, someone from a scout, you scouted him, obviously he's semi-recent and he's got obviously the interception numbers and being on the Cowboys is what's drawing people in. But if you look at like football outsiders and pro football focus, like Trevon Diggs has not actually been like the best corner in the NFL. He's got a lot of interceptions, but his pro football focus grade is a 67, which kind of puts him in the like. 25th percent group of corners this year and we've seen this like with Xavier Howard in the past and, and Byron Jones and guys like that like sometimes interceptions can mask someone's actual cornerbacking abilities because they're the the sexy stat that everyone pays it I think sometimes the only stat people pay attention to when following corners not necessarily target percentages and tackles and things like that so what do you make of Trevon Diggs so far this season because like everyone thinks that this is like a turning point for the Cowboys defense. And I look at them the same way I looked at the dolphins last year, where I'm like, when you generate a lot of turnovers, it masks, it masks a lot of inefficiencies on defense. Yeah. Uh, I definitely think, uh, you know, Diggs has really impressed with his ball skills and being able to use his athleticism to make up for some mistakes that he has. But one thing I definitely do notice with Trayvon Diggs is he is getting beat despite having these many interceptions. He's currently on pace to allow more reception yards than any other corner right now in the league. So despite having the, despite being the league leader in interceptions right now, he's on pace to allow his receivers to catch over. I think it was something like 12,000 yard or 1200 yards uh, this season. So that's, you know, for a cornerback, that is terrible, man. You, you never want to see that. But I, I think the, what I've, I've really gained from this is, is just the fact that Trayvon Diggs is a guy that – and we kind of saw this in college as well. He was a guy that is just – I, I want to say he, he's a main-to-main corner for one. And one thing that he really likes to do that I notice a lot is the fact that he likes to try to convince quarterbacks to throw his direction so he can't intercept passes. That's one thing I noticed from him in college. And it got him burnt a couple of times. That's why I – did have some problems with Trayvon Diggs coming out of the draft process. But at the same time, he was a guy that did have often interceptions. He was making plays on the field that really changed the game, and it, it really helped Alabama win uh, a lot of games was, it was his kind of turn of events and the plays that he has. He's very just for, athletic. For the people listening right now, what did you grade? Do you remember what you graded Trayvon Diggs just as like a general draft grade coming in? Because he was drafted late second round by the Cowboys. 
Right. I had an early second on him, I believe, in my grading book. Uh, I had him below C.J. Henderson pretty well, as well as Greedy Williams, I believe. was that, I think that was the class, I believe. Yeah, it was uh, last think, year's class. That's that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I believe he was cornerback four on my board. Three or four, I believe. Um, four. It was, it was – no, no, he was, he was three. He was three. Cornerback three on my board. Uh, so it was a, it was a pretty rough cornerback. Was class AJ Terrell uh, in there or, too? Sorry, 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 sorry. No, 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 no. It was uh, Okuda was one, uh, I believe. Henderson was two. Uh, and then I think I want to say AJ I, had Terrell? Will- I didn't have AJ Terrell top five. I don't okay. think I wasn't very high on Terrell. Um, I, I had Okuda one. I know that for a fact. Uh, hmm. I had Henderson. No, okay, that was not Greedy Williams. That was that was Christian Fulton's year. I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up. I, I wish I had my notebook different no. LSU okay, so, corner. I, yes, do, yes, don't beat okay. yourself up on that one. You're a ridiculous, crazy person who scouts 250 people every year. If you mess up the name of an LSU corner, it's it's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, I, okay, I, I remember now though. I had Akuda one, I had Henderson two, I had Fulton three, and then I believe I had Diggs four, and then I had Jeff Gladney TCU corner five. That was my quarterback rankings, and I believe. I believe I had Diggs like a late first, early second. Like he was right there, like 35, I think was his like drive ranking, like right around that area. Because I had Fulton at like 30, 31, I believe was his ranking. So if he was below that, he might have been barely below. So it was, it was probably an early second. And I thought that he might have gotten, he might have gotten drafted first round just due to the value of a cornerback uh, in, in the NFL draft. But of course, he ends up going late second. I know I love that pick from the Cowboys, a great in a, um, he had a very rough rookie year, and I thought oh, maybe you had scouted him wrong, and I started to write him off almost a little bit. Uh, but this year, he's, I think he's relatively turned it around. Despite his you know, still struggles in some areas, he's definitely making an impact for this Cowboys defense. And they're 4-1, and so obviously it's working despite them uh, allowing as many yards as they have through the passing game uh, this year. And I know a lot of people are putting the blame on other the, the other corners for it, but I definitely think it's definitely been Diggs as well. He needs to be held accountable for the amount of yards he has allowed during – uh, during the game, you know, like I said, Kadarius Tony, 180 yards. He was pretty much matched up against uh, Trayvon Diggs the entire game. So obviously, there's something that's going on there. Uh, and and I really think that I I could see Diggs fixing this problem and just overall becoming an elite shutdown corner for the future. But until I do, um, there's definitely some problems right now. I still have with Diggs, and I think that you know maybe people are overwriting him a little bit, calling him defensive player of the year. That's just not the case right now. He has six interceptions, and that's great. I think he be, he could be in the race, but. Um, you know, there is far more better players right now out there, like Miles Garrett, uh, who have completely outperformed um, Trayvon Diggs this year in other ways. You feel bad for the Giants? <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I, mean, I know because I we we've been beefing with Giants fans for a while because it's one of those it's one of those three teams where I say when you set your expectations too high and your franchise is mediocre, it's good beef to have because you're always going to end up being right and. Uh, yeah, we've, we've been beefing with the Giants for years because they're now going on a decade since uh, their Super Bowl title. It's just been mediocrity and terrible football ever since. But I do I, like they lost <laughs> they lost their four top receivers, quarterback, running back and tight end to injury. It's just brutal. Brutal. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, like I, I really thought like Daniel Jones has started this show like a, a bit of a turnaround this year. Like, you know, I, I didn't really think he would have. He's outperformed what I kind of thought he would this year. I thought he's been a pretty solid quarterback, especially in fantasy. 
He's been really good, at least. Uh, so I, I thought that he was okay. I have Saquon in fantasy, so I was really rooting for him this year because he fell like pick eight in my fantasy draft. So I was like, maybe this is Saquon's year when he comes back. Uh, but of course, you know, you know, he's out for this season, of course. And Ooh, who's the person uh, you took over Saquon, or who did you take Saquon over? Like, was Eckler on the board? Was Tyreek Hill okay. on the board? Like, which was so the bad fun- suffer one? Funny enough, I did get Eckler. I think the guy that I had a chance to get, I didn't get, was Devontae Adams, which hurts. But at the same time, I, de- I mean, I just value running back so much in fantasy, and I just stuck up on running back. But yes, I still managed to get Austin Eckler the next round, actually, because for some for some reason, it was PPR, but no one realized Eckler was like the PPR god. So I'm, I'm still happy because I got a replacement for, for Barkley almost instantly, and Austin Eckler is still a running back one. Yeah, I mean, you were saying something about Saquon. I kind of interrupted you there, but what were, yeah. you, what were you saying about Saquon? It's just it's just sad to see that his career's come to this. He is one of the most talented, if not the most talented running back I have ever scouted in my life. I mean, the, the, the dude was insane in college, and I, I mean, I knew that his potential was absolutely through the roof. And to see this, his career just kind of repeat itself and do the exact same thing, he comes in, plays four games, looks pretty promising, and then all of a sudden pairs an ACL and is out for the year. It's just really sad to see that he's – continuing to have these moments and if I'm the Giants I mean I, I'm, I'm looking at this future contract situation you're going to have a Saquon Barkley and I'm thinking like is it worth paying this guy this much money to be a continuous problem for your team where he's he's good for the few games he plays but he's not really much past eight games a season and is that really worth to give the amount of money that, that big amount of money for for a running back you know and it doesn't interest me to see where Saquon's career goes after this because I, I wonder if we're start. We're going to see a, a Saquon maybe goes on another team and is more or less a part of a not not a committee of running backs, but he's going to have another guy behind him who's probably talented enough to take over whenever needed. And all of a sudden, you know, this is we're not looking at Saquon the same anymore, right? Like everyone saw Saquon as the top five invincible back, and I think we're, we're we might start to see him become one of those. You know, I, I hate to say this name, but Todd Gurley's of the world. Yeah, and. I forgot to mention also Andrew Thomas, number four pick in the draft. He's gone also due to injury for the Giants. So just everyone's gone at this point. Um, while we're on the topic, I, I, did, I spent the beginning of football Monday talking about this. I just want to throw it out there and see if you see the same thing. Joe Lombardi, Chargers offensive coordinator from the Saints. Justin Herbert, Drew Brees vibes. Austin Eckler. Alvin Kamara vibes, Keenan Allen, Michael Thomas vibes. Do you see kind of a parallel with what the Chargers are trying to build compared to what the uh, the 49 win but no Super Bowl Saints did over the past four years? Do you see any parallels there? I think one thing that I have really, I guess, kind of gained from the Chargers as a whole is like the fact that this is now – I mean, I, for one, yes, I do see some similarities. I definitely think Herbert's a different quarterback, though. Like, he's obviously much more deadly on his legs and stuff like that. And I think oh, yeah. That, I, I think the um, thing I was doing there was just accuracy. It was just like being yeah. one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL more than anything else. Right. And, and, and you said Keenan Allen and, and, and Thomas. I'm actually Mike Williams is probably the closer to Mike Thomas right now. He's playing out of his mind. Uh, I believe he's currently the top five in receiving yards right now he has been insane uh and he's a rookie this or he's, a, he's on a contract year this year so i'm interested to see how he does there but um i, I definitely think that's one thing that intrigues me for uh with with the fact with the chargers is just the fact that i mean this is a very very well coached team that i think 
finally has their star player, Derwin James, finally healthy and able to play. He has been fantastic this year. And I think one thing that they, that the Saints, that the Chargers, excuse me, have that the Saints really don't is the fact that they have really three or four targets they can really rely on whenever they need a target. And I feel like for the Saints there for a minute, it was just Michael Thomas. I think for the Chargers, you could guys like, um, you know, I thought this name you're going to laugh a little bit, but Jalen Guyton, uh, you know, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Jerry Cook. I think that this is a very, very well-balanced – Austin Eckler, of course. This is a very well-balanced uh, offense on this team. And, and Herbert has so many options to go to, so he's not forced to try to, you know, just throw it in to one guy. And I think that was one thing that, that as a – as a person who covered the Saints for a long time, one thing that I always really worried about was, you know, especially when Michael Thomas was hurt, who else are you going to give the ball to other than Alvin Kamara? And they're continuing to find problems with that now. They still can't find a guy to give the ball to after Kamara. Yeah, now they just uh, and, don't have the quarterback. Yeah. Now they just don't have a quarterback who can make plays anymore. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, obviously this was – whenever they had Th- Thomas and Kamara, they were a prime playoff team. They were going 13-3 and three each season. They were good. But, you know, more, both, both of them could hardly see the field together. One of them was getting hurt whenever the other one was healthy. And, and after a while, it just came, kind of became obvious where the ball was going and that really led the Saints to, I think, some playoff struggles and just struggles later in the season in general. And I think for the Chargers, this is a little bit different. This is a team that all around, has a lot of guys that they can really target. I think this offense to the Chargers, at least for the future, is probably going to be better than the Saints, which is unreal to think, but it's, it's still true. And on top of that, Brandon Staley has done a fantastic job with this defense and making them pretty dangerous. I don't know if they're better than the Saints defense has been in the past with Cam Jordan and all those guys. I would say no, but I definitely think that they are still definitely playoff caliber as a defense, and I'm really excited to see if they continue to play. Uh, in the future. I mentioned that last podcast, I'm not the biggest Justin Herbert fan, but you cannot deny how great he's been the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And to add to your point about the saints, just real quick, also like end of 2019, Drew Brees was just done. Like Drew Brees was washed at that point because injuries had just piled up and age caught up to him. And that kind of neutered that offense a little bit, but to the point of the chargers defense, like you're a draft guy, the chargers, the last two years have done awesome in the draft where you talk about Kenneth Murray trading up, Great pick. Uh, Nasir Adderley, that's worked out awesome for them. You mentioned Derwin James, uh, Asante Samuel Jr. Like the Chargers have done really well for themselves on days two and three of the draft. Obviously, they used day two picks to acquire Kenneth Murray in the first round, but like day two and three, they've kind of been like winning on these draft picks and slowly, quietly rebuilt that defense that was one of the worst secondaries in the NFL. And now you look around and things are going pretty well. And, and all those picks I absolutely loved as well. Like when we pat myself on the back real quick, Asante Samuel, I had graded as an A. He was one of my favorite corners in this class. He was the guy that I had marked down as like, this is one of my guys in the class this year. I loved Asante Samuel. I thought he was going to be a very good ball, uh, you know, uh, playmaker when it comes to uh, being able to get interceptions, force turnovers, and just be a lockdown corner in general. I absolutely love that pick, especially with Casey Hayward now gone. I thought that was a great pick. I love Nasir Adderley. He was actually my first-ranked safety in the 2019 class. Believe it or not, I, he was my favorite safety in that group. Uh, and I absolutely love that pick the Chargers had with him. I believe he wasn't drafted until, like, it might have been round two. I believe it could have been round three. I don't remember one of those two. Um, but I thought that it was an absolute steal for them. And though he hasn't worked out yet, now that he finally is, I just thought he was a very great rangy free safety. You can just get around and get to different areas. And he pairs perfectly with Derwin James, who is just a lockdown guy that plays, you know, closer to the, closer to the box sometimes, but also can go deep whenever needed. It just allows him to, to 
really have players to go in. Having a guy like Nasir Adderley who you can trust cover the middle of the field, that allows you to experiment and do different things with Thurwood James, who is elite in all categories of the, of, of the football field. And so it's just a perfect match for those two players to be able to play together. And Kenneth Murray, another guy. A lot of people thought that maybe Patrick Queen was a better corner or a better linebacker. I was firm in saying Kenneth Murray uh, was was right there and was the second best linebacker in that class. I was a big fan of Murray and I thought he was really good. And to see him uh, continue to perform really, really well and impress and, and break out, I think he did get hurt. I believe uh, I don't know how long he's out for, but I, I believe he's hurt. But he is still a very good linebacker that I was also a big fan of. And personally, I was hoping that he would be a Cincinnati Bengal. Uh, and unfortunately, ended up uh, not working out. He, of course, went round one and we tried to Joe Burrow round one. But he's been good, and I definitely thought that was a great pick. All right, let's talk about the John Gruden stuff because this is obviously the story of the week. There's like three more crazy stories that might be just as good that we thought. You sent me a text. I think it was on. Um, I think it was on Sunday. You said you were like super excited for this podcast, and then the craziest thing of the week happened on Monday with Gruden. So, I defer to you. What did you make of the whole situation with the Raiders? Well, I, I mean, when the first bit of news came out, I was like a little surprised, like. You know, he was being as much heat as he was until I was able to read the full story and understand what had all happened. And I mean, it, I mean, it's a move that I mean, for the Raiders, I mean, I think it's an obvious move you had to make if you wanted to help protect your franchise, especially considering you do have a, a player who's now openly gay on your team. You know, I, I'm not going to get too political and, and everything that happened there, but I definitely think what Gruden had said in those emails and what he had overall portrayed in throughout the, I guess, the several emails he had made was disgusting. And I think that as a coach, uh, you know, if, if you're, when, you, when your players saw that, and obviously they were, they, you know, that broke out to the media, everyone saw it, the players saw it. I mean, you're just not going to, they're not going to trust you. They're, you're you're going to lose the locker room, right? And that's just a setup for failure in, in football terms. I mean, he's not going to be able to uh, be behind those guys' backs anymore. And I mean, uh, it, it was a shame to see because John Gruden, I think, is, you know, I mean, he's, he's he was in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ring ring of honor. I mean, he was a great coach for at his time, and to see that he made those comments and really just it really just disappointed me to see that you know how far that uh, you know he kind of fell off after his fantastic start to his coaching career, and it, it is upsetting to see. But I definitely think the move to fire, or at least the move for him to, I guess, uh, resign from the team was the right move, and he just needs to restart his life and. I would say stay out of social media for the at least for the very, very, very distant future. Yeah. And this is the losing of the job. That's the punishment for the digressions. And again, it was a resignation. I think the Raiders didn't have a ton of recourse other than just the massive amount of public pressure more than just like now you have a reason why he can't be the coach anymore. And we talked about this when, when the story first broke, like breaking the the at like doing doing the lazy racism part of it where it's like even people who are racist homophobic and misogynistic agree that what john gruden said was racist homophobic and misogynistic so like that part's already there and we're not really gaining very much from the the talk about the societal commentary and then when you move it to the pr side of it just the fact that the raiders thought this was their identity and like John Gruden was going to be their power head and their big money guy in a franchise that may or may not be bankrupt right now. Because if you hear the reports about what's going on with their financial details, it's a little bit conflicting right now, but to your point, like it was kind of just, there's no way he can walk into the locker room at that point. And that's the end of that story. And for the Raiders organization, like we can do some of the football talk around it too, because 
it's really fascinating because we haven't seen a story quite like this. We've seen similar type things with coaches being fired and like locker rooms giving up that way. Like the response afterwards is kind of like cut and paste protocol for what happens when a coach gets fired mid season. It's just the circumstances around it that make me look up and say, are the Raiders going to rally around each other here? Like the way a lot of people do, are they going to, you know, play for each other? Is this all going to fall apart? Cause the Raiders are still kind of talented and all of it was just a fascinating situation that, like I said, like we've only like been able to understand this stuff for like a decade, but I don't think there's been anything quite like this. The closest thing I could think in comparison was that thing with Greg Schiano at Tennessee where backlash yeah. prevented him from getting the job. And that was kind of convoluted and complicated. But other than that, there's not a lot of precedent for this situation and the Washington football team investigation. Well, I mean, I, I kind of feel like those two kind of went hand in hand in, in the investigations. I think that kind of one thing led to another, and that's kind of how the John Gruden emails kind of came about, at least in my eyes. But I mean, keep in mind, these are comments that he made back in like, what, 2011. So these were happening. Well so before, uh, uh, for, yeah, for people listening, I have it here. So the span of the emails we're talking about in terms of what they had in the database extend from 2011 to 2017. But I don't think in the story they mentioned expressly when he said all of these things. I think they just said the database of emails they had was from 2011 to 2017. Right. Uh, and, and I definitely think that... Um, I'm glad that we're now holding these people accountable for the, for what they're saying. Right. Cause I mean, this is, I mean, you got to keep in mind, like you, you have a, a group of, of grown men who are each in their own way, different, unique. And I mean, and special in their own ways, you know, and, and to say things about, you know, to say like these racist and homophobic things, especially considering you do have people of different color, you do have, you know, people that had different sexual orientations on your team. I mean, that's just, that's just going to rub them off the wrong way. They're not going to respect you the same way that you originally had their respect. And obviously if you didn't fire John Gruden, it was just not going to work out with those players. You would probably have a, a barren and team, a, a team that's just not going to be remembered anymore, right? Like it's just the Raiders are going to fall apart. Uh, and, and so you have to lead by example. If you're the GM or owner, you have to show them that, Hey, these, we do not condone what, what this guy said. We, we stick with the players because these guys are, the reason why you're even, you know, coaching in the first place. Right. And you have to show your respect to the guys that, that do make you the money at the end of the day. And, and I think that um, it was very important to get rid of Gruden and, and look towards getting a, a new assistant coach or, or a temporary coach, at least. And I think despite the Ravens having, or the Raiders having a great start, uh, I think they can still be a solid team, even with their assistant coaches. I think they're much better off with a guy, uh, I forgot his name, but they're, they're probably much better off with him now than what they would have been if they had kept John Gruden throughout this process. I don't think Gruden would have made this team any better if he were to stay much longer. Oh, yeah. I, I think after the second story, there wasn't any hope left for Gruden keeping it. With the first story, because we had the Demora Smith one that dropped on Friday, Like, I think we wanted to just give Gruden the benefit of the doubt. Like right. just, just believe in the character of, Hey, this is one incident. This is the information we have. And we just generally want to believe in the goodness of John Gruden, just as the football coach who's been around people of different backgrounds for his entire career. And, you know, this is something that extends to larger society of what happens when you close yourself off in circles of like-minded and like thinking people, but even still like Gruden outside of the lock, we don't want, first of all, we don't know 
anything about these people just from us standing here because we don't have personal relationships that way. I got burned that way with Deshaun Watson because I Deshaun Watson was one of my favorite players in the NFL. And I realized I was putting a lot of emotional stability in that, even though I don't really know anything about Deshaun Watson or about John Gruden or about people in these situations. And so once you have the access to the information, it just changes the equation altogether. And for John Gruden, this is just kind of, you have to go away for a while. Your punishment of sorts or society holding you accountable um, is that you just can't coach anymore. You'll get some kind of buyout with the Raiders probably, you know, I don't know what the number is that he was left owed, but the Raiders tried the flashy move. They get burned on it. And I suspect that in financial ruin and after getting burned on trying to make the splashy higher for the franchise, that they'll just kind of go back to being every other team, just hire a low level assistant, maybe an innovative offensive coordinator, maybe a a couple blah hires and just kind of be an average team for a while, you know? And it's a shame that that happened because I did think the Ravens obviously made Ravens Raiders, excuse me, made an obvious attempt to help reset their franchise. They've been stuck in a hole for quite a long time and they were desperate to get out of it. And I respect them for getting a guy like John Gruden, paying him as much money as they did to try to help fix this franchise. And it's just a shame that, um, you know, Gruden ended up having all these issues because I think that had the Raiders made the right decision, this could have been looked back on as one of the better moves uh, to help maybe reset their franchise, make them better. I mean, this is keep in mind, this is a franchise that has really struggled to, uh, you know, to stay afloat, like you said, when it comes to uh, money and, and just trying to be a program that has our franchise, excuse me, that has their, their fans excited. And I think this was one thing that I think made a lot of their fans excited, especially starting the season. They looked really good. I think a lot of people had a lot of faith that they maybe could have reset and all of a sudden become a better, a better program uh, or a better franchise as a whole. And to see this all kind of go, go down the drain in a way it's, it's very, very disheartening to see. And I, I hope the Raiders are able to, um, you know, find a better coach and fix all these issues and be better. But I just think that, um, you know, it's just a very unlucky situation for the Raiders. I don't blame them for anything John Gruden did. Uh, it's just, it just sucks that that happened. And they're the team that had to witness that uh, despite them being always in the center of like of news when it comes to things like that. Yeah. I mean, we did the ranking a little while ago of like the AFC teams across the last two decades. And I think we had the Raiders like in dead last, like it's just, it's been a brutal two decades for the Raiders. And I think even more than anything else, they had an identity. Their identity was around this crazy guy that was getting, I mean, still behind Bella. We don't know exactly what Belichick makes, but behind Belichick, the second highest paid coach in the NFL, like the, the marquee coach that defines your franchise of sorts. Like some franchise are, are marked by their best player. Some people are marked by their GM. Some are marked by their owner and some are marked by their coach. And the Raiders identity was built in that coach. And now the Raiders identity is still built in that coach just for reasons that they weren't hoping when they first embarked on this John Gruden endeavor. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's just, it's interesting for me to, I guess, see what, you know, whose identity do they go towards now? Uh, are, are they going to 
Are they going to follow the owners? Uh, are they going to follow the GMs? Is it going to be maybe Derek Carr or one of these players that kind of take over and become the new leader of the team? Because obviously an interim coach is going to be an interim coach. He's not going to be someone that's going to obviously turn this team around and all of a sudden become like the best guy out there. You're going to have to find someone else to step up. And I really am interested to see who's able to do that. And I'm rooting for the Raiders now. I, I hope that they're able to turn this around and help you know, defeat all these problems and outside noises that have been created due to some stupid mistakes that, you know, of course their head coach made. Well, I think this goes back to the default because for 40 years, the Raiders franchise was defined by the owner. Like Al Davis was the Raiders for 40 years. And like old people talk about Al Davis being the owner that would fight the NFL. And he was the guy on the sidelines and he was just win baby. And they still light the torch at every Raiders game. Like that franchise was defined by the owner. And I think they were kind of defined by his son for a little bit after Al Davis died. But now I think they default back to the story being around Mark Davis, who has his own ineptitudes, but at the same time, I think he just kind of refills the power vacuum. And I think he probably will for the next like decade, because I don't think the Raiders are going to do splashy hire again. I don't think they have the money for it first and foremost, but also I think they're just going to be one of these teams that hires, you know, the defensive coordinator who had a good reputation or whatever the situation is. I don't even know who the candidates would be this year. Um, Maybe, maybe it's Todd Bowles. Maybe it's Dayball. Maybe it's, I don't know. Like they just hire one of these assistants. That's not really flashy, but it's like their next turn in the front office hiring. So I think that kind of defaults back to Mark Davis kind of just filling the void of his father again for an organization that's been pretty incompetent for two decades. Yeah. Maybe I can Eric the enemy, uh, you know, getting another chance. Uh, Man, that would suck. Coach. That would suck for the enemy. If he, if he had to wait two years for the job to come and then he has to take that job, that would be rough for Eric the enemy. But, but I would argue when you look at the receivers, and stuff, this is probably one of the better close, like better built teams to be the chief style. You have Henry Ruggs and guys like that. I mean, I think this is something that I can imagine, uh, you know, uh, Eric Bieniemy working with in in a way, but yeah, that's also a good point. But no, I, I think, think that... I think your point is there because I still think the Raiders have a really talented roster. Like technically, this is the one job where tech. It's not like he's getting fired for performance. It's not like the person who gets hired, like Sala, is automatically inheriting a terrible team or Man Campbell or whatever Arthur Smith. Like technically, the Raiders do have some pretty good pieces there, so maybe that is desirable. Maybe it's like that year with the Colts job where. Uh, they fired Chuck Pagano, but they still had, you know, all those pieces there. And Josh McDaniels took the job, then didn't take the job because he was going to wait for Belichick to retire. So maybe this is a better job than I'm giving it credit for. It's entirely possible. Yeah. And, and one thing that I really, really think is desirable in a job is the fact that you have a reliable uh, you know, quarterback that already knows the system and can help you out. Because I think one of the biggest challenges, uh, you know, at least in, in my experience uh, of looking at coaches is seeing a rookie coach with a rookie quarterback. You know, uh, you can see right now, Robert Sala and, and Zach Wilson has struggles to start out. Joe Burrow, Zach Taylor has struggles to start out. You're, you're seeing these these groups of, of rookies try to grow together and be good together. But I think for the enemy is that there's a possibility that if you have Derek Carr for the first couple of years of your career you you can really 
um, win and, and be able to stick close to this team as well as learning and figuring out what you have to do to continue to get better. And then I think at that point, you know, you give them three or four years, maybe Derek Carr goes to another team or retires in some way. Then you're ready to get your own quarterback. You know how to coach him up and be good. You know what you want in your quarterback, and you could probably make your guy into your guy and get enough pieces around him uh, to build around him and start to contend for a playoff. So I think there is definitely a very, very enticing um, – there's a, there's a very enticing – it's a very enticing job due to the fact that I think Derek Carr can play a difference in this in this team as a whole, unlike some other quarterbacks in the past that really have. Because I think Derek Carr still has top, what, top 15 maybe quarterback upside right now. Uh, maybe even top 10 upside. He's How many, okay, let me ask games. you this question. How many quarterbacks would you say in the NFL right now are – like they elevate a team? Like we think of like game managers like Jared Goff and it's like – Okay, Jared Goff is as good as the roster that he has, but he's also a little limited in his play. So who are the quarterbacks that you think like elevate a team? Like what's the cutoff line on that? Because I think of Derek Carr as the cutoff line of like, if your quarterback is better than Derek Carr, they can kind of elevate the team that they have in front of them. Yeah, like, I mean, Baker Mayfield, Derek Carr, like that like little area right there. I think it's like Kirk Cousins as well, like right there. It is what I kind of see, like, obviously Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, if we're including Deshaun Watson, Watson, uh, Aaron Rodgers, um, you know, Kyle, I would even say Kyler Murray right oh, now. Easy. Guys like that. Yeah, easy yeah. Kyler, uh, Josh Allen, Russell Wilson. Josh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Russell Wilson. I would also say maybe uh, you could even argue now Justin Herbert, I would say, is maybe, maybe oh, his team. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Dak Prescott. And, that, yeah, Dak Prescott as well. I, I think all those guys are, are in that group of uh, – and I would even say Joe Burrow, actually, too. Joe Burrow I'd put in that category. I think he has made the Bengals better uh, in the way that he's played. He's obviously been a, a very noticeable upgrade over uh, Andy Dalton, and he has made this program – or this made, made this entire franchise better on the offensive side of the ball. So I would even say Burrow. I won't um, argue with you on it. I'm not I'm not going to be the person who argues that one. That's I agree to a certain point. I yeah. I think he's there, or at least will be there very soon, just with a larger sample size. Right. Uh, I think after that, I, I really look at, like like I said, Baker, uh, Kirk Cousins, and Derek Carr. That's like the, the first three players that come to mind. And that's just like... Ooh, what about 50, Stafford 50. and Tannehill? <sighs> See... Both of them are on really good teams right now, and though they're playing really well, they were on teams before that were bad, and they were bad, right? So we're talking about. I don't about know if Stafford good. was ever bad. Uh, Stafford was always confusing, okay. but uh, right, Tannehill, I agree and, with you. Yeah, Tannehill was average. He was up and down uh, for sure throughout his career. I would say uh, Tannehill at least. Uh, Stafford had good moments and bad moments in his career, but I think the the one thing I I guess I kind of think of is like when Stafford was at the Lions, they never really overperformed expectations and with now he's with the Rams they never really overperformed expectations as well we knew the Rams were good and they are good obviously um I don't know I, I just I just think that like if Matthew Stafford goes to the Vikings for example how much does he turn him around compared to Kirk Cousins and I don't know the answer to that so he would probably I would say if I had to pick one of the areas, I'd probably say he maybe does improve the team, but he's another guy I think would be right there in the cutoff line as well, uh, possibly. He might be like, uh, like, I don't know how many players I listed, but if I listed like eight or nine guys. Well, we had 10. We had 10 up until uh, the three that you said. So Carr, 
Baker Mayfield and I forgot who the other person you had was. So he, he would he would probably be 11 at that point, I, I would say. Yeah, Carr Mayfield and uh, Kirk Cousins. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would, I would put him ahead of those guys probably, but I don't know if he really belongs in that same area as the other guys I listed because I just think that we haven't really seen him. We, we never saw him, I think. It, it would be different if he had single-handedly led a team like the Lions to the playoffs by himself. And, I mean, he, he kind of – you could argue he did, but he also had, you know, very good weapons and, and some help occasion. Like, he had some pretty solid teams over the years, and he just, you know, never was able to really overperform expectations. And now that he's with the Rams, he's, of course, an elite uh, level, you know, quarterback right in the thick of things when it comes to MVP races. But at the same time, I think that he was put in the easiest – probably one of the best jobs in football right now being the Rams – uh, coach behind Sean McVay's genius uh, coaching abilities, as well as Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, a, a very solid offensive line, just a very solid team in general. I think at that point, and and that's why I kind of go back and forth on it because it, I just I expected this from him, right? Like, I, I I saw this happening. Is Matt Ryan done? Yeah, yeah, he's done. Yep. All uh, right, we're good. We don't need any more elaboration. <laughs> yep, we're good. <laughs> yeah, Matt Matt Ryan's. I mean. It, how long does he last as a starter? He might last next year, year or two, but we're not going to see the Matt Ryan we once saw. He, Matt Ryan himself is over it. And I, I mean, I, I answered that so quickly. I didn't even think about it, but yes. Yep. Yeah, nope. I think we were good. I'm like, is Matt Ryan done? Yep. Okay. I agree. We're good. We don't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. We, we can move on if you want. Yeah, Matt, they, they that was so perfect. That was because uh, usually you, usually you have nuance and conversation around it to get to a point. Cause you and I are both very nuanced in our opinions. We bring a lot of, we don't have a ton of strong opinions for you. You were very strong about Tua Tungavailoa starting last year. I was baffled by how strongly you came out against the Dolphins for putting Tua in because I'm like, he never has that strong of an opinion about anyone. And I'm kind of the same way, except sometimes I do it. Sometimes I go into the sports radio gas bag type of stuff, but uh, I did it with Big Ben last year. But that we both agree Matt Ryan's done that we we can move on at that point <laughs> that was so perfect that was it was so perfect when you just hit yeah and then had a pause I was like okay there we go I'm not used to just that emphatic of an answer <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it's probably not very entertaining in, in podcast form no but, but like, now we can make entertainment out of it because like yeah Matt Ryan's done okay good we don't have to have a conversation about it Matt Ryan's done <laughs> I just don't, I just don't see him being what he ever was in the past. And <laughs> no, you don't uh, need he to apply ch- nuance. You don't need okay. to apply nuance to the situation. Matt Ryan is done. We're going to put it on a headline. Matt Ryan is done. That's the title of the podcast. Matt Ryan is done. <laughs> We're done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Love that. We don't need to apply nuance to the situation. Sometimes it's okay to just say, yeah, fuck Matt Ryan. He's done. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is. It's sad to see what's happened to the Falcons. That's another team that just, man, it, it's crazy how fast they fell off in that Super Bowl appearance that they had. It, it was just, I mean, oh, no, had like I, I disagree. Time. It felt like it took forever for that to fall off because for four straight years, they were just 350 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. Both teams score in the 30s. They're going to win 50% of their games. <sighs> felt yeah, like but, that was, they were like that forever through like four different offensive coordinators, too. Maybe offensively, but defensively, it really fell off. That went from oh. being a, a really good defense to, I mean, after that Julian Edelman catch, it just went completely down the drain. Like, 
terrible. Well, so I think that team was kind of fluky even in the first place. Cause I think even Maybe. the year before that, they were ranked like 13th in the league in defense. Again, I don't have the stats in front of me, so I might be wrong, but I feel like it was like one year. They were just like first in the league in team defense. And then after that, it was kind of like the end of the Falcons defense being good. Well, if you remember, Vic Beasley had like an unreal season with the Falcons. I believe that was Super Bowl year where he had like 14 and a half sacks. And all of a sudden people were like, is Vic Beasley a top 10 edge rusher in the NFL? And man, looking back on that, that's hilarious to think about. But yeah, I mean, it was just, it might've been a fluke because after that, Vic Beasley has been terrible. The Falcons in general have been terrible. Uh, everything's changed and they really don't have any corners to help with their team. But, uh, you know, that, that for that one year, they were just a really good defense, and all of a sudden, that was a, a playoff team that really should have won the Super Bowl had it not been for a blown lead late. Yeah, who else was on that defense? I need to like because Vic Beasley is one of those names that we're just gonna like. You know how we like to say random names of like 2011 football players. Like Vic Beasley is gonna be one of those names ten years later that we play for that with that game of just naming random old football players. So, I mean, Desmond Trufant yeah. was still really good that year. I'm just looking back at the depth chart now. So. Yeah, they, well, they had like uh, Keanu Neal, I believe, was still on that team really good. He's a rookie at that time, I believe. He was really yeah. young or something. Robert uh, Alford had, was you know, still there. Yeah, uh, current Bengal now, Ricardo Allen was really good at safety there as well for their team. Um, you said Bryce Alford, I believe, is on the team as well. Or Robert Alford, excuse me. Yeah. Um, I believe Desmond Trufant was good back then um, and on their team. Grady Jarrett was insane. Uh, he was crazy good as well. Um, of course, Deion Jones and Devondre Campbell, I believe, were still there at linebacker, and they were a really good duo for that team. Um, yeah, I, I no, really they were they were pretty good. You know, uh, those are good ones off the bat. Those are those are pretty good players. Like, I don't think it's ever a number one defense, but still, it's Desmond Trafont used to be really good. Like, he used to be a lockdown corner. I know it's funny to think about now, but he did used to be a lockdown corner technically. Yeah, he was he was really good, and they had like one of the best like linebacker, like younger linebacker duos in, in, the, in the NFL back then. Like everyone was really, really high on Deion Jones and Javondre Campbell as a duo. And, well, and of uh, course, now, Vic Beasley having 16 sacks. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like that, that, I guess that trio, you could say uh, guys, everyone really expected to be great. And, you know, Campbell and, and Beasley were both really fell off. Deion Jones has been really, really good his entire career, but he's never really been on a team that's been good outside of that one year. So Yeah, because he's been on the Falcons his entire career. The Falcons have yeah. just been awful on defense for five years, but their offense scores 35 points a game usually, so whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just it's been a struggle for him because he's not able to, you know, at the end of the day, one single linebacker isn't going to completely change your your defense. And that, that, that's just, it's a shame, but it's true at the same time. And he has really had his entire career, I guess, wasted up until this point. I hope that he can maybe find a different team in the future because he's a very, very talented linebacker. I think, like, if you if you put him on a team that has a pass rush, we could be talking about Deion Jones. But all of a sudden, it's like, you know, a top three linebacker and a guy that is right there and possibly defensive player of the year conversations is because of how, how talented he is once he has guys around him. It's not like for lack of trying to. Like, they drafted Tack McKinley, signed D, uh, Dante Fowler. Like, they've tried. It's just it hasn't worked out very well. Oh, they, they've done a lot. They, they put a lot of assets into the secondary that have just not worked out one bit. Um, they, they've, you know, they, they've drafted guys with higher picks. I feel like every single draft pick they've had in the last several years outside of Calvin Ridley has been on the defense. Um, well, and, and then and Kyle really Pitts this year, but yeah. Kyle, yeah, obviously, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, 
and maybe Kel McGarry as well. I forgot about him at that tackle. But outside of those three guys, it's been mostly defensive picks that I can remember at least. And, and to see that uh, it is not really panned out for them. I, they've really not hit on any of those picks at all. Like, I mean, not one of them has really stood out to me as like, oh, he did really well there. Uh, Are the Falcons like the Jets offense where people just go there and then their careers just kind of die and then they go to other places and turn out better than they, than we thought it's like the Falcons are just cursed. Like the Jets offenses are certainly possible. I I think like they don't have one true cornerback one on their team. I think if one of those cornerbacks went to another team, they would be a very solid cornerback two or cornerback three. Uh, Grady Jarrett on a great offensive line would all of a sudden be one of the biggest powerhouses in the NFL. So I definitely say with him. Yes. Uh, Deion Jones I already mentioned could be a possible defensive player of the year candidate if he's on a good team. Uh, certainly, certainly some of those guys. Yes, uh, for sure. I, I think that defense just needs to be reset and they need to find they, they what they desperately need right now is an elite pass rusher. If they had a Miles Garrett or a Khalil Mack on their team, all of a sudden it could be a different defense, but they don't have that right now. That sucks for them. Draft the guy from Oregon. You got to maybe a top draft pick. I don't know. They're two and three right now. So maybe they won't have a top draft pick, but you could draft the guy from Oregon. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think, I think right now you're looking at Thibodeau probably being the number one overall pick, but if they can get to him, that would be amazing. It, that would be absolutely ideal for them. I, I think another guy that I have really marked down for them actually did a mock draft today uh, with the Falcons taking this guy, Aiden Hutchinson, uh, edge rusher from Michigan as a guy that I was really, really high on last year before he returned to school. And he has been an absolute beast this year. He has definitely improved a lot. I think he might be earning himself a top six pick in this draft. And currently the Falcons have set the pick at six right now. So if you can get that pick and, and get Aiden Hutchinson, that would be absolutely clutch for your, for your franchise, I think, for the future. Anything else you want to talk about here? Because I know you said you were super excited for this. Is there anything I missed here that, that we haven't hit on so far? You, you want to talk some playoff baseball? Well, well, we haven't really talked a lot about the Kansas City Chiefs uh, at all right now. And I think that does intrigue me. Uh, how well they have been playing or how poorly they've been playing lately. We kind of mentioned them, I guess, before about the defense and everything like that. But uh, I'm starting to see people now start to say the Chiefs are all of a sudden, uh, you know, not the same Chiefs anymore. And I, I think that that personally does shock me a lot. We can talk about baseball after this. I'm sorry, but I, I just don't, oh, I don't, I just I, didn't want to throw I, out. There's no baseball. There's just game five of Dodgers Giants. I'm just throwing that out there. If you care at all about playoff baseball, we've talked a lot about it on the podcast. So no pressure. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't. I can. I've watched a lot of baseball, but I, I do. I just do want to say, like, it, it does shock me that people are already throwing out the Chiefs after three losses. Like, that is absolutely nuts to me. Um, do I think that they have underperformed so far this year? Yes, for sure. But I think this is still a team that people have to be really, really patient with. Uh, and you give them an extra couple of weeks, and all of a sudden they're going to be right there back in Super Bowl contention again because it's Patrick Mahomes. I said this once, I'll say it again. Don't count out Patrick Mahomes. He's too good. And and I will say I, I did get their uh, – I did definitely get their uh, Vegas bets off <laughs> this time around. So I, I did miss that because I bet too much of Patrick Mahomes. But uh, I, I'm still not ready to give up on the Chiefs yet. They're still a good football team that is going to get better um, once they start to, I guess – Figure, the, figure themselves out and hopefully get an identity on defense. Yeah, I think you had like a one in four week in gambling last week. I think one of those was the Chiefs, if I remember correctly. So not a, not a great rough. situation there. But even, even still, um, it's weird that we have a situation where you have the number one offense or like a top five offense and then number 32 defense. Like it's weird that you have a top five offense and such a terrible defense because – 
yeah, the Chiefs are are totally beatable. Like I I agree with people who say the Chiefs are beatable. They are way more beatable this year than they were last year. Like last year they were just dominating everyone on the way to the Super Bowl. This year there's like four teams in the AFC that can beat them. I think in like a one game winner go home situation, like that it would be hard for the Chiefs to come out of it. I think Buffalo is probably the team this year that like is the most scary. I think Baltimore is right there too. But if you're Kansas City, of course you can be beat. Like th- this year, if your defense is that bad, you can be beat any given week. And the stat I will bring in on Mahomes is that he has six interceptions already this season, which matches his total from last year and is one more than his interception total from 2019. So that can be a reason why part in that they're two and three, but also if Clyde doesn't fumble that football, they beat the Ravens and they're three and two. And I think if they're three and two, people are panicking a whole lot less than the two and three Kansas city chiefs are a panic. So that's my two cents on the Kansas city chiefs. Yeah. I mean, if, the Bills are a great football team, right? That wasn't like they, they got blown out, I guess. And that is something to worry about, I would say. But that's a that's a game that the Chiefs can, you know, that, that's a game that is definitely losable for the Chiefs. It doesn't surprise me that they do lose at all. So I think they're pretty evenly talented right now. The Bills had a, one biggest weakness this offseason. It was an edge. It was that defensive line. And look what they did. They went out and absolutely fixed defensive line. And it's fantastic now. So that's a team that has absolutely no holes in their team. It's a team that can beat you. And I understand that. Um, I, I think one thing that, I guess I kind of expected to happen was after we saw Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, Patrick Mahomes all, all signing crazy big extensions. You know, you could only assume that now that they have very little money, they were going to have some problems trying to find good players on defense. I think one biggest problem right now is one of the pay- players they are paying the highest amount of money right now for Frank Clark is a no show. He's just not been, at, he's not been anything for this team right now. And it's a shame to see that. Um, they really need to figure out a way to probably possibly get rid of his contract if possible and find a good replacement or a couple of replacements for them. I, I like some pieces they have. I like Legarius Sneed. I think he's still really young and has some problems, but he can get better. Uh, I like Juan Thornhill a lot. I think he can be really good. Um, I, I, of course, Tyron Matthews are very solid safety. I think that they do have certain players. Frank Clark in the middle is really good. Nick Bolton, but they, who this is a, this is a true thing. I, I thought up until this weekend, I thought Nick Bolton was white. Like through the entire draft process, through months of watching the Kansas City Chiefs up until Sunday Night Football, I thought Nick Bolton was white this entire time. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I knew what, uh, what he looked like and everything like that. But yeah, yes, you're a uh, scout. You would know that. I just assumed yeah. middle linebacker from Missouri and instinctively just assumed he was white and never fact-checked it across the last five months or eight months or whatever it's been since I learned about him when we were doing draft stuff. I was talking to someone about this, actually. Like, I'm so used to just seeing players play. I really don't pay attention to what their faces look like. And so when I see them get drafted and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, that's what he looks like. Wow, I didn't expect that. You know, like Creed Humphrey is the best example. Like, I saw Creed Humphrey, and I was just like, that's a sick name. That dude must be, like, really cool. And then he just looks like a really, like, friendly, just nice dude that's just really nice to you and everything like that. Same with Tevin Jenkins. Tevin Jenkins is a perfect example. I mean, whenever you watch a dude on film, he looks like an absolute – beast and just someone that you're look that looks like you're terrified and i i suggest you go look up tevin jenkins if you want to see his face i mean the dude he has glasses on he has like a very friendly smile he looks like your your algebra two friend that knows all the answers oh my so god that's tevin yeah, jenkins yes oh my looks lord nothing. and this this dude was the most aggressive meanest offensive lineman i have ever scouted not even joking he is the meanest guy i've ever scouted he why is his head so small oh my gosh 
it is wild. It's just there's certain players that you're just like, wow, they look like that. That dude's like a 350 pound left tackle. How is that? Oh my gosh, that is that's genuinely shocking. That's Tevin Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, that that was a big one for me. That I saw and I was like, wow, that looks nothing like him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this happens with football, right? With the helmets. We used to joke for years, like if you were sitting next, if you're sitting next to Khalil Mack in a bar, would you know that it's Khalil Mack? And this was back when he was like winning defensive player of the year. Like football can do that sometimes because the helmets make people feel kind of anonymous. Yeah, it, it is. It is really cool to see like how like, I don't know. I think it's just funny. It's hilarious to me that Tevin Jenkins uh, he looks like the nicest guy you'll ever meet, guy that gives you an extra pencil in class, and then he's just on the football field, like absolutely just destroying dudes' lives. It's hilarious. That happened to me with Braxton Berrios, where like I like saw him and then I saw his face. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Braxton Berrios. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like would have had no idea that that's what he looked like as a slot receiver from Miami playing for I, what is it, the Jets? I don't know. Braxton Berrios. Is Braxton yeah. Berrios still in the NFL? I, I don't even yes. know if that's true. Yeah, he plays for the Jets still, I believe. He's still, oh, he's still I, a I, I think a very good player on the team. Yeah. Oh. Good for Braxton Berrios. I didn't know. I that. think he was a starter up until Jamison Crowder came back, I want to say. Oh, good for him. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's also the returner, I want to say, as well. I think. So yeah, you're right. He had seven catches for 73 yards against the Patriots. Good for Braxton Berrios. Since then, he's had like three catches, but still. Yeah, Crowder came back. That's why he's, he's not much of a factor anymore. But I, I you know what? Braxton Berrios is a guy that. Uh, has been like just there for a long time. He's been a jet forever. It feels like, right? Like what, five or six years? He's been a jet. I want to say. Oh, I don't even think he's been in the league that long because he was on those Miami teams that were like number one in the country until they lost to Pitt. So I, I don't think he's been in the league that long. Let's see. I, I want to say he's like twenty-seven, isn't he? Could be he's crazy. twenty-six. He was drafted 26, in okay. two thousand eighteen. He's been a okay, jet so for three seasons. Four years. Okay, three. Yeah, this would be a fourth. So I guess that makes sense. Oh, apparently, yeah. Super Bowl champion Braxton Berrios did not realize that because he was on the practice squad of that Patriots team that beat the Rams in the Super Bowl. So Super Bowl champion Braxton Berrios. Nice, congratulations, Braxton. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah. Like, I, I'm gonna. Yeah. There's wow. a couple of players I do that with. I'm gonna do that with him now. Every time I mention, like I say. Super Bowl champion Blaine Gabbert to you, not just Blaine Gabbert. It is Super Bowl champion Blaine Gabbert, and now Super Bowl champion Braxton Berrios. I'll be real, like I, I mean, I scouted the 2018 season, but I did not remember him in that class. You know, and that was like still really early on in my scouting scouting days. So I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna pretend like I, I knew who he was at that time. But man, that is crazy. I, I do remember he played for Miami, but I didn't remember how good he was and when he played. So. The only reason I knew he played for Miami was because of that year that they beat Notre Dame. He had like two touchdowns in that magical game that they won. Right. Yeah. That was it. It's crazy that Miami was that good. Just like what? Five, ten, five, uh, four or five years ago. That's pretty wild. Yeah. I think that was Uh, 2017, maybe 2016. One of those two years. It was like right. It was like right after Mariota Winston, right? Yeah, it was. Cause that year Clemson, Clemson either won the national championship or lost in the semifinal or something like that. It was either 2016 or 2017, but yeah, Miami was 
number two in the country. And then they lost like on the road at Pitt the last week of the season. And it was just like a total ACC coastal moment where it's just like, even when good <laughs> things happen, you beat Notre Dame by 35 points. You immediately lose to Pitt the next week or two weeks later, whatever it was. And you don't get to make the college football playoff. Yeah, that hurts. <laughs> that is the ACC coastal summed up. Like, like we've said, we, that is one tradition we always have, just going back and making fun of the ACC Coastal for being Oh, but this ACC year, Coastal. the ACC Atlantic wanted to get involved, too. This year, the whole yeah. ACC wanted to play this game of everyone beating each other up. North Carolina, man, what happened? North Carolina loses to Florida State. And Miami thought they were going to be right in line with UNC, and they lost at home to Virginia. Virginia Tech was good, and then they lost, and... Uh, Georgia Tech almost beat Clemson and then they lost to Duke or something like that. I don't even know. It's just, it's been a year for the ACC. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is just dominated right now by the Big Ten, SEC, and Big 12. Just overall, yeah. that entire. <laughs> Who's going to win the ACC this year and why is it Wake Forest? <laughs> it, that is, I mean, I'm, it's sad that that's the case. Like, I'm. I, it is crazy to me. Wake Forest currently is six and zero, and what? Where are they ranked right now? Like fifteen in the nation right now? Like that's yeah. wild. To me. Yeah, but they also went to overtime against Syracuse last week. So yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. Wake Forest. They'll lose eventually. Yeah, they'll lose eventually. But I mean, it's just the fact that they're even considered better than Clemson right now is just laughable. Oh, I was so disappointed because uh, up until uh, two weeks ago, when Boston College was also undefeated, there was a scenario where. 11 and 0 Wake Forest would play 11 and 0 Boston College the last week of the season <laughs> to decide who would make the college football playoff but unfortunately Boston College lost to Clemson but they did cover the spread I'll give them they they did cover the spread but lost to Clemson so uh, Wake that Forest That would be an all-time matchup an all-time matchup <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, So let's see Wake Forest is on bye this week then they play Army yeah, that, that's tough. Okay. Um, then they play home against Duke. They'll win that at North Carolina. Uh, that's an ACC coastal game, right? Waiting to happen. That's a classic <laughs> letdown game. Uh, home against NC State. That's NC State's Another technically one. ranked right now. Like they're still riding they're the victory against Clemson. Yeah, they're good. NC State technically controls their own destiny in the ACC Atlantic right now. And then that is wild to imagine, too. Can can you imagine seeing NC State versus Wake Forest or what what is it like NC State versus? No, it's going to be like NC State against Virginia in the ACC championship. That is is sad. Can can you imagine (laughs) saying that before the season started? We're just like, what in the world happened? (laughs) I can't imagine saying it right now. (laughs) like idea that like just it was supposed to be north carolina then it was miami then it was virginia tech then it was i don't know who's left pit pit might be good who knows pit's technically in first place right now in the acc coastal because their only loss was to western michigan what in the world is going on yeah, no, it's just That's ACC crazy. Coastal at its finest. The Pac-12 is doing it too this year. We literally on our we do memes of the weekend every Monday as like a second podcast. At the end, we just have a segment of how did the Pac-12 and ACC fuck things up this weekend. That's just a segment we do every week now. Is how did they mess? How did they just do terrible ACC and Pac-12 things? Well, you know that, that's that's always that's always going to be a very consistent. Uh, <laughs> A very consistent uh, segment for you and all those podcasts because they always manage to screw things up somehow. 
even in an off week, like eight teams were on by last week. We still had three moments like that because North Carolina lost to Florida State and Wake Forest went to overtime against Syracuse while being undefeated. Like even in an off week, it still happens. And, you know, Stanford beats uh, Stanford beats Oregon and everyone celebrates Stanford, you know, just creating chaos in the conference. Then don't pay attention the next week when they literally lose by 24 to Arizona State. Yeah. Uh, Oregon's also, I think, like Oregon's like the one consistent team, I think, out there, even though they did lose to Stanford. But uh, yeah, not a, even uh, Oregon's not immune. Even Oregon is not immune to the, the curse of the Pac-12. They'll play Iowa say, in the Rose Bowl this year. I will say though, like give them give them next year. And I mean they have one of, if not the most talented defenses I have ever seen ever in college football. Like, I mean, it is unreal to see how great some of their players have played. Uh Noah Sewell is the brother of Penesu, I believe. Um, he is probably gonna be the best linebacker prospect I have ever scouted, right? I mean, they already have Kamon Thibodeau, of course, the elite edge rusher. They have a very, very good safety. I totally just forgot his name. I haven't scouted him yet, but I've heard a lot of people rave about him a lot and a very, very good cornerback as well. Uh, or sorry, excuse me, not a cornerback, another linebacker. Um, it is a stacked uh, Oregon, Oregon team on defense. And their offense is still pretty questionable. They just lost their starting running back, uh, C.J. Verdell, who I liked a lot for the entire season, so that kind of sucks. But, like, if you look at the entire Oregon Ducks, like, you know, like football depth chart, their their defense is insane. And it's really impressive to see how – it is crazy to me that they lost to uh, – they, they lost to Stanford. That, that's just a team that I would have never imagined would have lost one of those games. And, yeah, here we are. Just to sum up the entirety of the um, – the entirety of uh, the Pac-12 right now. Yeah, and this this conversation might bore some people. Like, I don't know exactly, but I've found super interesting that in a sport that no longer does regional recruiting, Oregon's kind of like taking advantage of the market inefficiencies of like, if you have a four, if you have two, like the five-star recruits, everyone's going to go for like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio state, they're going to invest resources in like going to California to get Bryce young or, you know, going to Hawaii to get to a tongue of Iowa. Like if the, if the prospect is that jump off the page, good, everyone's going to invest resources in. But when you talk about like the four star recruits or like the three and a half star recruits, if you can get one that's say in Florida or Georgia, if you're Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, guys like that, or you have the exact same prospect in California, then you're probably going to invest resources in the guy who's closer than the guy who's on the other side of the country. And so Oregon's kind of like made this market inefficiency of we're just going to recruit the entire West coast and put all our resources in the three and a half and four star recruits on the West coast and take the people that USC would usually get, or take the people that maybe Arizona or Arizona state would get, or maybe like Oklahoma would come get someone like that. We're going to put all this Nike money into winning the West coast recruiting game. And they've built kind of a regional power with like people from San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, uh, Utah, Nevada, They've kind of just, and Oregon, Justin Herbert literally was in or in Eugene, Oregon. That's where he grew up. So they kind of had that one fall into their lap, but even still, like they've just recruited everyone from the West coast and they've built this like regional power in college football. And I find it super fascinating in a sport that now you don't really have regions anymore. Cause you can turn on the TV any weekend and watch any team in any part of the country. 
you got to think now, like when you look at all the West Coast teams, it kind of feels like they are just a step above everyone else too. Like if you if you want to stay close to a home or and you're a very talented prospect, Oregon's probably your best bet if you're on the West Coast because they are a top play, uh, a top NF, or college football team, of course. Uh, and they are, like I said, they're on the West Coast. They're one of the, they are the best team on the West Coast, I would say. And you can stay close to home, possibly. So for guys like Justin Herber or uh, you know a lot of those guys from like I know they get a lot of American Samoa. Uh, players like how Panesu or Noah Sewell or any guys like that, um, it, it's it's perfect for them because it allows them to kind of stay um, to to be on the probably the best team around their region for sure as well as being possibly close to home if you ever need to go back. Yeah, and if you're looking at the list of like schools that have the most uh, money invested into the program, um, if you're looking at ones on the West Coast, so you have Oregon in the top ten. After that, you keep going. You have USC, um, you have Cal Berkeley, uh, you have UCLA, who invest most of their money in basketball, Utah, Colorado. There's not a lot of other schools. Those are just in the top 50. Like Oregon and USC are the only ones in the top 20. So Oregon and USC are really the only programs that financially can dominate the West Coast if they want to if they want to invest that Nike money, if USC wants to invest that money from their gigantic donor base, like, and 11 million people in the city of Los Angeles, like if they want to be great at football, those are like the two schools that really can invest the resources. Like Washington can be good at football, but they just don't have the Nike money that is basically just helping to like the reason Alabama, Ohio state and schools like that, it can be really good at football. is just, they have so much more money than other schools. So you're kind of right. Like Oregon and maybe USC are the only places that theoretically could create a West coast regional powerhouse. And, and, and let me just say once the NIL becomes a huge factor in all this, that's going to help Oregon and USC both a lot more because those are the two most well-known and biggest college schools, of course, so all those endorsement deals that they're going to be able to get on the West Coast, which is, a, which is of course, a huge market, you know, California and all those places are huge markets going to pay lots of money for you to talk about their companies. Of course, you're going to get a lot of really good deals. I think you can make a lot of money if you go to work in USC because that's a because, you know, the East Coast is going to have a lot of competition with a lot of different elite prospects. And it's going to be hard to make your name out there. But if you're if you're one of the very. You know, if you're one of like three or four elite prospects in, in, in on the West Coast, you're going to get a lot of endorsement deals and a lot of money. I could convince a couple of those big time prospects to go over there. Plus, they play in a conference in the Pac-12 that kind of beats each other up. But the reason why, like we joke about the ACC in the Pac-12 is just because those schools don't really care enough to like dominate the conference in that way. Like Washington cares about football, but they they're kind, again, like it's not the top priority of the University of Washington in that way. Like they, US, it wouldn't be Oregon either. Like Oregon wouldn't be that much if they didn't have Phil Knight money and Nike money. But like Stanford has the money, but they just don't have the will to invest it in the football program. Cal has the money, but they don't have the will to invest it in the football program. UCLA, same situation. They're a basketball school. Like, there's schools that technically have the money, but there's just not the desire to be as great at football the same way USC and Oregon are. And I wonder if I wonder what would happen if those schools did get if one of those schools got serious about like wanting to compete with them. Maybe USC could do it anyways. I mean, USC can hire their new coach right now, and 
you know, maybe it's going to be Matt Campbell, maybe it's going to be James Franklin, but like, even then, like if USC really wanted to get wild and crazy, they could maybe try and go after Oregon again and try and reclaim the West coast. Uh, it's certainly possible because that they have, I mean, they are already a pretty solid team. They have assets to be able to do that if they, if they so choose. So that, that would be really, really cool to see if they would be able to bounce back because USC has had very successful teams in the past. We've seen how they've done whenever they invest a lot into the sports. They know they can do it. It's just, will they ask the big question? And, uh, you know, it's up to them, honestly. But I think with the NIL, you might be able to convince them to. And who knows? Maybe, maybe if, if the, all of a sudden the uh, USC Trojans find success in that, maybe it convinces other teams in the Pac-12 to try to do it as well. And all of a sudden you have a couple of teams like that. I mean, USC has been pretty good in the past. They've made a couple of Rose Bowls in the past, you know, under Clay Helton. Um, I think it was just Clay Helton wasn't really a sexy hire. And he, he kind of like, by the time he was kind of like Gus Malzahn, where it was like, we're kind of just hanging on to see what ends up happening. Like, we're just waiting for that one bad year to finally take over. Because I'm looking at Clay Helton right now. So uh, 2015, they went five and four. Well, I don't know how they go five and four, but they played in the Holiday Bowl. Then they made the Rose Bowl. Then they made the Cotton Bowl. That was that year against Ohio State. So they won the Pac-12 that year. Um, 2018, they finished five and seven. Uh, 2019, they went eight and five and won the Holiday Bowl. So they kind of built everything back up. Uh, Last year, they went five and oh, but it was kind of that weird fluky year because they... um, they, they kind of like won every game by one score and technically went five and zero, oh, and then they had to cancel the conference championship game. So that was kind of a weird year, but they had that good run at the beginning. And then it was just kind of like boring after that. So, but they weren't bad enough to fire Helton, I guess. So I don't know. It just kind of turned out blah for USC a little bit. Maybe they'll do something cool this time around. We've talked about their hiring process before, you know, maybe they'll do something splashy and fun i i would love to see programs like usc and this is an impact 12 but tcu and, and programs like that who had had great teams in the past try to get back to those points because those were schools that i really enjoyed watching tcu is one of my favorite schools to watch back in the day just to watch how like they, them play really really well um and, and contend constantly like i was even before dalton was on the, the Bengals, i watched dalton play in college and i was a big fan of his and i really enjoyed watching them play um, I, I really enjoyed watching all the USC teams over the years that really dominated and, and played really well. Played really well. I like what they have right now, actually. Like with Kendon Slobus and that and the offense, I think that they look pretty cool. They always have consistently some pretty good prospects. I'd love to see them, uh, you know, do that to a greater scale and just have more of those top dogs in those divisions to help maybe contend with these Clemson's, Alabama's, Georgias of the world that are just continually dominating year after year. Like I want to, I want to see. I want to see a Florida State. I want to see an Oregon. I want to see a USC bounce back and be one of those powerhouse programs again that help contend against those teams so we don't get the same thing every year. Baylor tried it. One ended in scandal and one ended in the coach leaving for a better job and then investing all their money in the basketball program and letting the football team just kind of like float around. I think Baylor's actually like five and one this year. I shouldn't actually. I think they're actually not that bad this year, but still they kind of. West Virginia last week, I think. Yeah, but that's kind of a low bar to hit. Beating West Virginia yeah. is a, a lower bar to hit in the pack in the Big Twelve. But even still, I think they are pretty good. Like Baylor's not that bad, but they've tried. They've at least given it an effort to try and compete in the Big Twelve. Like 
technically Oklahoma state has the money to do it, but you know, Gundy's been a really good coach, so they don't really need to do anything else. They've kind of been okay being in that Iowa purgatory of always being like the 14th best team in the country. But other than that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's solid for Iowa. I think like that's, I mean, I don't know if I was able to get up there to the top like all these other schools can. They might be able to, but I don't. I don't I'm not no, sure. No, it was the same thing I said with Iowa State last year. It's like you can't you can't build a college football powerhouse in Iowa. It's just not possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my thoughts as well. So I mean, for where they're at, I think it's understandable. But with these other schools that really could, they could have the environment. They could have the the you know fans and everything necessary to do it. I would love to see it. I would love to see them try to get back up to those points. Now create more competition in, in college football. That's all I want is just more competition. I want to see, I want to see someone take down Bama consistently. I want to see someone take down Clemson consistently. I want it to truly be like an even, because like usually we can pretty much tell what the championship's going to be. Like the playoffs don't really matter. It's just a fun game to start out and hopefully you get up, so maybe make it interesting, but normally you don't. I want to see it to the point where it's just like any team could win between these guys. And I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see which one would, you know. Let college players have salaries. That's the answer. Just exactly. let them exactly. have salaries. <laughs> and that was a big step towards that. And so hopefully we're getting to that point. Yep. So you want to make your picks for the week here? Let's bounce back. Hopefully these are better. Yeah, so update on the standings here because I forgot to tell people the picks last week. So update on the standings. So our boy Cam at DSD is 15-9-1, which means that he is 63% picking on the season so far, which is pretty unbelievable. Me and him both had the Ravens at the end of that game, so that was a magical comeback victory for Lamar Jackson to help us stay afloat. And then the other three people, myself, you, and uh, Walter Mitchell from Red Rain, it, we're all 12 and 13. Three-way tie at 12 and 13 <laughs> behind first place. So three and a half games back. We're all looking for a bounce back this week in some way, shape, or form. So uh, where do we want to start here? Again, rule, you can always change your pick, but you have to pick a Lions or a Falcons game. And I think the Bengals play the lions this week. So that could be a nice little bump for you. Um, that's true. That's true. Dolphins at Jaguars. Dolphins are three point favorites in London. Yeah. Um, man, it's a tough one. Jacoby Brissett. Are we, are we sure that he's legit and everything? I oh, I think two is going to play this week. Oh, I is, think, he, is he healthy? I think so. Um, I think Flores said they were planning on Tua to play and that he was going to make the trip. I think that's what it is right now. This is not the greatest game to ask you now that I think about it, given that we don't know what the situation is with Tua, but I think Tua is going to play. That's risky for me. <laughs> um, this might be a game where I switch to the Bengals lines because I know I'm going to be able to bet that one. <laughs> Yeah, I did you dirty on this pick. I did you dirty on not knowing exactly what the quarterback situation is for the Dolphins. Well, I, I wanted to be clear. If it's Brissett, I was picking the Jaguars. If it's two, I'm picking the Dolphins. But I, if it, it, we don't really know yet, and I don't really know if I would be smart enough to change my answer. You know what? No, then, this so. is a dirty pick. I'm going to audible this in here. That was a dirty game to ask you. I'm going to audible in a different game. Chargers-Ravens. Ravens are two-and-a-half-point favorites at home. All right. Uh, the Chargers are rolling. The Ravens are rolling. These are two both really, really good teams right now. Um, I was really impressed with how well the Chargers played against the Browns and responded to all their all, all the things the Browns are throwing at them. Um, you know, they Browns scored at will, and that's a problem. But I definitely think the Chargers are able to 
um, stop, uh, were able to stop them whenever it was necessary and, and help help them win the game overall. Uh, I think the Ravens, of course, they they live off the identity of the run. Um, they, they did run the ball fairly well against the Chargers, but um, I think that the Chargers did a great job of making it to where, you know, it, it was tough for Baker Mayfield to pass. Mayfield had a really, really tough game, and I wonder how well Lamar Jackson can pass against the Chargers. Um, I'm going to take the Chargers here to cover and win this game. I think that they are, uh, at, at least Maya is right now the better team, and I really think that if Lamar Jackson – he had a great week last week in passing, but I definitely think this is going to be a much tougher test than what the practice squad group of the Colts was. So I'll, I'll take the Chargers here and say that the Chargers win this game. Uh, I do think it's close, but I think they'll cover and win. Packers at the Bears. Packers, four and a half point favorites. Yeah, the Packers, I think a lot of people worry about how, how good the Packers were after the Bengals game. Uh, I, I really thought that there were obviously a couple pieces that they were missing that were uh, you know, worrisome for their team, but I definitely think that that's still the same Packers. Aaron Rodgers is still a great quarterback. Devontae Adams is still an elite wide receiver. They still have pieces out there to help win games. The Bears are three and two somehow. They don't really impress me too much. They beat the Bengals, of course, which I guess is, I don't know, it's not a very big, uh, not really a big bar mover for me. I, I still think this is a very, very unproven team. Uh, I'll take the Packers to cover here. I think the Packers take care of business against uh, Chicago. I would be shocked if they lose this game. Um, I think that is, they're just too good right now. And I still don't trust Justin Fields to do too much right now early on in this process to do enough to beat Aaron Rodgers. Vikings and Panthers. Panthers are one and a half point underdogs at home. So Vikings are favored. Yeah. And give me the Vikings to cover this game and win as well. I think the Vikings win this game. Uh, I, I think this is uh, the better team right now. Uh, Christian McCaffrey does have some question marks. I believe he's going to be healthy for this game. Um, but we don't know how fully healthy he is. Dalvin Cook should be back for this game, so we're going to see both those running backs back at full power. This is a big question mark on whether or not um, which team is going to be able to play better defensively right now, and I definitely think the Panthers have some assets defensively that they can really work with and perform well right now, but I just feel like it's a safer bet to bet on the Vikings defense to, to help uh, contain uh, Christian McCaffrey and his offense to the Panthers. I really think they're starting to finally figure things out. Uh, and, and we saw them, you know, take the rounds to the wire. I think this is a solid team that can really do uh, good enough. And, and I really think the Panthers are not fraught necessarily, but definitely were – they had an easier schedule to start out. And obviously that kind of helped them look as good as what they were to start out 3-0. and And we're starting to see them lose a couple of games now. They lose again here. I guess a pretty solid Minnesota team. Cowboys and Patriots. Cowboys are three-point favorites. I don't know how it's a three-point spread here. That kind of surprises me. Uh, the Cowboys are legit a great team. I think they're right now a top five team in NFL. That's kind of crazy to say, but they look really, really good. And I have, I'm, I'm really impressed with how well this team's playing. Um, Patriots have a pretty solid defense, I guess. Uh, offensively, I definitely worry about, you know, what they're going to be able to do against this Packers defense. They have a very, very good set of linebackers that can help stop, uh, you know, the running game. It's with Bud Bolden and Damian Harris. Um, and, you know, Jacoby Myers, Nelson Aguilar, they're, they're playing solid, I guess, at wide receiver right now. But Trayvon Diggs, like I said, is another factor. If he gets another interception or two in this game, all of a sudden the Packers, the Cowboys are going to have the ball in good field position. I think they take care of business here and win this game, and I'll have them cover as well. Finally, Seahawks and Steelers. Who is the best quarterback in this game, and why is it Geno Smith? Steelers are five-point favorites. Wow, five points is a lot in this Um I think people are kind of counting out Geno Smith a little bit. He looked pretty solid, and I think he can he can do well enough to keep this game close. 
I think the Steelers probably could still win this game, but I can see this being within like three points rather than it being like that, you know, like a five point, um, you know, difference. So I'll, I'll take, I'll take the Seahawks to cover, but I think the Steelers probably still win this game. All right. The Seahawks burned you last week. So uh, you're willing to roll with them again this next. Well, this... Mm-hmm. that was a completely different game because I thought Russ, you know, Russell Wilson was still healthy. Maybe if Russell Wilson was still in the game, maybe that wasn't, uh, wouldn't have been a problem necessarily, but I don't know. Now that I, now that I have an idea of who the starting quarterback is going to be, I still think they could probably cover despite question marks. You and I combined this year, fun factor, 0-4 picking the Seahawks between you and I. We picked wrong on the Seahawks every single week so far this year. They are one of the biggest mysteries right now in the league because that's a team that on paper, like, I mean, I think a lot of us expected the Seahawks probably be the consensus second best team next to the Rams this year in the NFC West. And we kind of thought that would be like, probably the best wild card team, maybe like a 13 and three, 12 and four, or excuse me, 13 and four, 12 and five team. But to see them, you know, start to struggle right now, they're two and three. I mean, that, that is crazy. This not two and three, sorry, three and two. Um, but still, I think that's still pretty crazy to see that the Seahawks kind of struggled so far out the, out the gate right now. Like we haven't really seen enough for them to really make, make us think that they are a playoff team, uh, an elite level playoff team, at least. And then they're, they're winning games. They should lose or losing games. That they should win. That's a recipe to get some of the spreads wrong. Well, and their defense is so bad this year. It's been very confusing because I thought they would at least be like, okay on defense, not one of the worst defenses in the NFL so far. No, they, they are two and three, right? I believe. Yeah. No, the Seahawks are two and three so far this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought they were three and two for a second, but yeah, that, that is, that is crazy to think that the Seahawks team, I, I guess it is partially due to the, uh, the defense. Of course, they, the cornerback room has not been very good. They've, they've, they released Trey flowers. He was terrible, like absolutely abysmal. Uh, for them uh, they needed to reset and uh, find new guys and I think that's what they're starting to do now I hope that they can do it because I'm betting on them win to at least uh, you know cover in this game but I, I don't know if they can beat the Steelers I think the Steelers probably can still beat them in this game but I can see it being really low scoring and possibly really close good luck sir good luck to your Kentucky Wildcats all that fun stuff this weekend you can enjoy your potential drubbing at the hands of Georgia but enjoy these next few days Listen, anything under two touchdowns for me is an absolute win. If we win this game, I don't know if you'll be hearing from me again. I'll probably be moving to Lexington and becoming a. Do I would be that'd be amazing, but I'm not expecting too much. So don't worry, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go out and say that the Cats are gonna win. But I'm I'm living off a high right now, and I want to enjoy it as long as possible. Ah, uh, nuanced as always. I love it. That's kind of the theme here on this <laughs> podcast. Always nuanced, except with Tua Tungavailoa and Matt Ryan. Those are the points where you will That's not by be fifty. <laughs> <laughs> and Mac Jones. I think we were pretty aggressively anti Mac Jones being the number three pick in the draft. I think that was the other line that we drew in the sand where we will not be nuanced on this. Hey, don't you worry. I'm going to have some strong opinions this year in the draft as well. We'll, we'll just have to wait to, to talk about them, but it's going to be fun. Yes. Give it some time, like two more months. <laughs> We're in the middle yeah. of football season. We don't have to try and drag draft content out yet. We, we don't have to worry about the dark ages yet where we have to try sure. and find content of three weeks of Julio Jones talk. Yeah, don't worry. I'm, I'm, 